0: Are you a Bullseye fan? Well, why don't you take a minute and hop into Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show. Tell the world what you think about what we do. It actually makes a really big difference, a strangely big difference in the show. And it's really easy. It's a quick, simple thing you can do to help out this program that you like. So jump into Apple Podcasts or whatever software you use and leave a good review for Bullseye. Thanks.
1: Gregory Warner here to tell you about NPR's new international podcast. It's called Rough Translation. Each week, we're going to take you to a different country to hear a story that reflects back on something that we are talking about here in the United States. Maybe get a perspective shift. Travel with us. Rough Translation is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. I mean, I guess you can call Alfred Molina a character actor. Put him on TV, he's the one great thing you remember from an otherwise forgettable police procedural. He can turn a good movie into a terrific one. He's done it so many times. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Education, Boogie Nights... And you probably know this, but he was also Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2. Which, by the way, he loved every minute of.
2: The late Bob Hoskins once said beautifully that he loved playing villains. And these these are the three reasons he gave. You you work for about half the time as the leading man. They treat you like the crown jewels. And if the movie sucks, nobody blames the bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, it's absolutely true. It's bullseye.
0: Coming up, Alfred was born in London to Spanish and Italian immigrant parents. He says he always felt at home in the UK, but never totally welcome. Like he couldn't really be himself. And that when he first went into acting, that didn't really
2: change. You know, I can remember being told by by my very first agent, because I went through drama school. My full name is Alfredo. And I went through drama school as Alfredo and then my first agent said oh you'll have to drop the O darling you'll be uh, otherwise you'll be playing Spanish waiters your whole life.
0: Then Louis Anderson. He plays Christine the mother of Zach Galifianakis's character on the FX show Baskets. He won an Emmy for it in 2016. He's up for his second this year. He was born and raised in Minneapolis and he knows how they do things up there.
3: Minnesota is such an unusual place. I've been everywhere, and there's a real sense of we will open our arms to you, we will accept you, and then they will not show you the rule book.
0: (laughs) Finally, Faye Dunaway, Steve McQueen, Sexy Chess, these are a few of my favorite things in the 1968 film, The Thomas Crown Affair. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Alfred Molina started his acting career almost 40 years ago. First on British TV, movies later on. His first big part came in Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981. He plays one of the guides that betray Indiana Jones in the beginning of the movie. Pretty crazy start, right? Since then, he's gotten over 150 acting roles. He's responsible for a bunch of other unforgettable scenes in movies like Boogie Nights and Chocolat and Coffee and Cigarettes. Recently, he starred in the first season of Feud, the FX series. It's set in 1962. It tells the story of the rivalry between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford when they were filming their movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Melina plays Robert Aldrich the movie's director. He's great, as always. In fact, he just earned an Emmy nomination for his work. In this clip from the pilot episode, Molina's character's on the phone trying to convince a reluctant Betty Davis, who's played by Susan Sarandon, to team up with Joan Crawford and take the part.
2: Betty, listen, here's the deal. Crawford's name on the marquee gets us distribution. I need her to get the picture made, but I need you to make the picture great.
3: Keep talking.
2: Betty, listen, I've made my share of steaming piles of But every now and again, I get a chance to work with an artist like you, someone who isn't afraid to leap off a cliff. Most people are terrified to go anywhere near the edge. Now, that gets me excited. I'm a kid again. Everything's possible. Betty, I promise you, this is going to be the greatest horror movie ever made. And Baby Jane's the greatest part you'll play since Margot Channing.
1: All right, answer this question, and don't lie. Why
0: this picture?
2: Honestly? I'm not being offered anything else.
0: Alfred Molina, welcome to
2: Bullseye. It's great to have you you. on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Your character on Feud's entire story is suffused with this combination of bravado and entitlement and terror. Like, there is not a moment when you are not staring down the end of your career (laughs) at the same time as there is not a moment that you are... Presuming that everyone on Earth should just do what you say,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. That's a, it, and it's very true. I think of a lot of people, uh, particularly white males in the industry at that time. I mean, there was, uh, you know, I and I don't think Robert Aldridge's generation even spoke in terms of entitlement and privilege. I don't think those words would even have occurred to them um, that it was an issue. To, you know, that it was just the way things were. I mean, there's a. A wonderful moment in the series when Alison Wright's character Pauline confides in Robert and says that you know she's written the script and she really feels like she wants to 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 direct it, and he basically says to her, "No, that does that's not going to happen because you know women don't direct movies," and he doesn't say it with any sort of meanness. It's it's just the way it is. It's just a fact, and and I think that. That sort of true is that, that 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 the fact that that existed, that situation existed, allowed men like Robert to to both sort of be very conscious of of how their careers were oscillating. And at the same time, assuming that, you know, what they said went, you know, and, and it's uh, it must. I, I, I imagine someone like Robert couldn't exist today, maybe in the movies uh, only uh, unless they were. Literally rhino skinned.
0: <laughs> you play a lot of bad guys. Um, do you find yourself liking them when you play them?
2: I suppose on some level you do. One does. I think. Yeah. I think on some level you kind of have to embrace them. Not that you sort of endorse anything, but you. Yeah. You. You have to. Maybe liking isn't quite. I can only speak for myself. I I become, I accept them, I think, you know. Uh, But there again, the villains I've played have very often been sort of villains in a kind of rather sort of extreme heightened way. They haven't always been comic book villains, but they've, they've often been men who have done bad things for, you know, for a good reason or have done bad things, you know, has been a motivator for something else, you know. So there's always a, there's always a, a reason for it, you know. But I think, yeah, you. I think you have to embrace your characters, if if only so as not to misrepresent them. If anything,
0: you did play a literal comic book villain.
2: I did. Yes, you, and you I, played
0: uh, you played uh, Doctor Octopus in Spider Man Two. Yeah, which I have to say, I think is probably the best. Is probably my favorite comic book movie, and you're wonderful in it. Well thank you. Um that movie is a blast. It's a really I mean I think you know it's 15 years later and y- you know you can s- you can
2: see a little bit of age on it these days. Oh yeah. But that movie is nothing ages. <laughs> nothing ages quicker than acting styles and, uh, and 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 kind of movie styles. Nothing yeah. ages quicker. It's amazing. <laughs> well, certainly computer graphics are
0: one of the things yeah, yeah. that ages the most poorly. But that movie is a really fun movie. And I wonder if you're playing a character that is like literally an evil genius <laughs> like an actual literal semi robotic evil genius. How much of that is you seeking grounded humanity, and how much of it is you letting on that you're enjoying being a robot man
2: well i think it's i think it's fifty fifty you know mm-hmm. I, I think there's you have to. Again, this goes back to the whole idea about embra- you don't just embrace the character, but you embrace the world that the characters exi- you know are operating in. And I think there's there's nothing worse than um, than getting into one of those movies, particularly those kind of you know the, the whole comic book world of villains and superheroes. You can't go in there with a sort of attitude like you're going to be ironic about it because that just doesn't work. It, 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 you're on a hiding to nothing. You have to literally you have to embrace it and it has to be in some way as authentic as you can make it but that doesn't mean that you can't have fun along the way yeah. i mean the the uh, um the late bob hoskins once said beautifully that he loved playing villains and these, these are the three reasons he gave you work you work for about half the time as the leading man they treat you like the crown jewels and if the movie sucks nobody blames the bad guy <laughs> And the thing is, it's absolutely true. You know, you can hate a movie, but you, no one ever comes out kind of going, oh, the villain really, oh, the villain was terrible. You know, no, because the villain, the actor or actress who gets to play the villain, has such wonderful license to have fun, to kind of, you know, you can legitimately chew the scenery when you're playing the bad guy. So there's, a, there's that element, which makes it a lot of fun to play. But then there's that whole other side, which is you want to make a villain at least... Give him some depth, give him some dimension, give him somewhere to go. So if you have a moment, the moment of, of regret, the moment of redemption, the moment when the villain suddenly does the right thing or you know, sacrifices him or herself to do the good thing, that moment can mean something. It can have some value, not just uh, for the story but also for the audience. Um, so there's a, it, it's, it's a great gig to play the bad guy. It's a great gig. It really is. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is
0: Alfred Molina. His latest role is in the FX show Feud. He was just nominated for an Emmy. I want to talk to you a little bit about your life. <laughs> Ooh. You, grow, you, you grew up in I can hear
2: the I can hear the listeners turning off.
0: <laughs> you grew up in London, uh, the child of two immigrants, mm-hmm. your father from Spain and your mother from Italy. And... I wonder how you thought of yourself as a kid. Did you feel English? Uh,
2: I I remember f- feeling English at times. I remember desperately wanting to feel English, but somehow England always somehow reminding me and my family that we weren't. It, it was, you know, I was born in 1953. So I was growing up in the late 50s and 60s, early 60s. And the war, uh, World War II, was still very much alive in people's memories. You know, it was only 20-something years before. There, was, the people, there were still people who were active in politics, in the culture, in everyday life, who had direct experiences of the war and so on. So it was a huge, it was a huge event and something which completely coloured and influenced everything about, you know, life in Britain.
0: Including people's opinions of Incl- Spaniards and in- Italians. In- yeah,
2: because uh, the Italians were, had, had been uh, for a while, you know, sort of allied with uh, Nazi Germany. Um, uh, Spain had a, had a, had a, a f- fascist dictator who had remained neutral. But there was always the Brits. The British have always had a very good talent at reminding you, making you feel very welcome, but at the same time reminding you that you're not quite British you're not, you know, and 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 so I, I kind of was aware, I was conscious of that a lot, but on a day-to-day basis, I, I I I was the recipient of lots of different influences. You know, my my parents worked in the catering business. My my father was a waiter, and my mother cleaned rooms in hotels. You know, we watched British TV, even though most of it was American. <laughs> you know, we ate Spanish food and Italian food, and and I sometimes longed for English food which, I, oddly enough, my parents didn't cook very well. Um, I, I think I was maybe the only kid in my class that actually enjoyed school dinners. <laughs> so it was, it was a, there was a lot of confusion, uh, but the one thing that was constant was my parents' attempts to be... to kind of to assimilate. You know, they worked very hard at learning English, and they learned English very well. They could... Uh, they both had a real skill for languages, they both learnt each other's language and, and English. Obviously, they had French in common. Uh, they could read, write, and speak fluently. So there was—they uh, were very proud to be there and very happy to be there, and, and they worked very hard. But there was always, there was always—you know—I I can remember being told by by my very first agent because I went through drama school. My full name is Alfredo, and I went through drama school as alfredo and then my first agent said oh you'll have to drop the o darling you'll be uh, otherwise you'll be playing spanish waiters your whole life you know and that, and and amazed, and i was thinking about that recently and i suddenly thought can you imagine can you imagine someone saying that nowadays to i don't know benicio del toro you know can you imagine someone saying benny you know <laughs> it's you know it's too 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 ethnic you know and uh, and i i sort of uh I'm sorry that i did I'm sorry that I acquiesced now. I'm sorry that I took his advice
0: i, I want to play maybe the most famous scene that you have ever been in. It Ooh. was your first film, a uh, movie called Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe some of our audience have heard of it <laughs> um, uh, they may if they don't remember it from the film, they probably remember this scene uh, from the Ride at Disneyland. <laughs> So you played the, the Peruvian guide of Indiana Jones. You betray him after stealing a golden idol, which leads to a boulder that both of you have to outrun. Maybe the boulder comes immediately after you no longer can do any running. L- let's take a listen as, as your character is on the other side of a crevasse from Indiana Jones.
2: Give me the whip. Throw me the idol. No time to argue. Throw me the idol. I throw you the whip. Give me the whip.
0: Adios, senor. (laughs) (laughs) You've now spent, uh, I guess, like 35 years or something like that (laughs) as the throw me the whip, throw me the idol guy.
2: Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that.
0: Like you would think that being Doctor Octopus would uh perhaps outclass being the throw me the whip throw me the idol guy but i imagine that uh those are i was going to say a burden that you that you carry but i was the the wings on your back will yeah. always be
2: there is no throw me the whip yeah.
0: throw me the idol i
2: i, I this is that there is no burden no there is no there, there <laughs> There is no burden involved whatsoever. I, this is the one thing when, when actors complain about, you know, getting stuck in. You say, oh, God, everyone keeps mentioning that line or that line. I, I start to lose my patience because it, it. this is, you know, I'm very flattered. I'm very flattered that that I'm, you know, I'm part of, a, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a tiny little part. I, I'm a tiny little footnote in the history of, of movies. And that's delightful to me.
0: Here in our office, uh, when we booked you on the show, there was a sort of collective understanding that we would be playing a scene from the movie Boogie Nights, which, if anyone... It's a wonderful film, the film that in some ways established Paul Thomas Anderson as one of America's great cinematic auteurs. And um, it's also a totally bonkers movie. just like, super bonkers. Your scene... Um, One of the more bonkers scenes (laughs) in the movie, there was some discussion of like, does this even mean anything on a radio show? (laughs) Um, So basically, Mark Wahlberg is the protagonist, a guy named Dirk Diggler, who's a porn star who eventually starts to dabble in drug dealing and uh, phony drug dealing. And they go to meet your character, uh, who's named Rahad Jackson. And it's really crazy. There's a giant dude in a bathrobe with a knife inside his bathrobe, and your character is high as balls. Um, and he has a giant revolver. And also another guy just off screen is playing with firecrackers. <laughs> so uh, let's take a listen. This is
1: silver. So, do we? This me is not, uh, not, uh,
3: Don't point. <laughs> <laughs> not well, you should not point the gun. Sir? Todd. What, you think I can't do it? No. Uh? Wait, wait.
2: Don't You think I can't do it? Sir, <laughs> <laughs> wait. You want to speak ah! to it? Huh? No, huh? Are you dare me? Ah! No, we don't care you. You dare do me? Damn it! <laughs>
0: There is this version of that scene uh, that a guy made and put up on Vimeo where he removes the music digitally and it is so crazy and intense with I'm mean, like the music is so fun that it gives the uh House of Mirrors terror quality and edge of fun <laughs> like the fact that everything is to the tune of Sister Christian um this goofy song but like it must have been crazy to do that over and over
2: on st- on a soundstage or whatever. Well, it, it was, but it was at, our director, Paul Thomas Anderson, did a very clever thing, which I thought was brilliant, and it was all to do with tone and texture. He wanted that the young actor who was playing my like you know my houseboy as it were, who yeah. was lighting the firecrackers, he instructed him to just light the crackers in his own time, not to worry about continuity or, you know, as each take, just to do it whenever he felt like it. And the crackers were full, you know, full bore, as it were, so they were very loud. A sound man's nightmare, but, you know, they went with it. So the three actors, Thomas Jane and, and Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley, who were sitting on the sofa sort of watching me, they could hear those firecrackers going off at full you know full volume and it was and they didn't know when it was coming so every time they reacted every time they kind of jumped or or got freaked out by the noise was completely genuine but PT Anderson wanted my character to kind of float through this completely unaffected by it so what he we did was he I plugged up one of my one ear was completely plugged up so I couldn't hear anything. And in the other ear, there was an earwig, so I could hear the dialogue. So when the firecrackers went off, all I heard was like a faint sort of... Like a very faint sound. like in the So, I, so it didn't cause any reaction in me. So, so Rahad Jackson is wandering through the scene, eerily kind of completely unaffected by it. And that, just that simple decision, created a very weird vibe. And it was and it worked so beautifully because I was I was, you know, supposedly the character was supposed to be as high as a kite. And it was just such a stroke. I thought it was a stroke of genius on his part. We'll have more with
0: Alfred Molina after a break. We'll talk about how he thinks being the child of immigrant parents made him a better actor. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with Alfred Molina. He just got an Emmy nomination for his role in Feud, Betty and Joan. He's up for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Limited Series or Movie. Do you, as an actor in your 60s who have performed every single kind of role, relate to the part of Robert Aldrich, the character you play on
2: Feud, who
0: has just worked?
2: Yeah, I I do. I, I think part of why I enjoyed playing Robert so much and I, you know, I didn't get to meet any of his surviving relatives or anything. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any sort of insightful conversations with people who knew him on a personal level. I just, I just garnered, what information I could from what's out there in the public uh, in the public domain, but I, I enjoyed playing him because I kind of I related to him in many ways, and one of the things was, this was his job, and he loved his job, but it was his job. You know, he never he never spoke about his job in any kind of way that was mystical or some way. You know, like it was uh, some strange. Sort of moment of, you know, uh, connection between him and something cosmic. You know, I mean, when it, when when I, I I get a little, I get a little frustrated with that approach to acting. You know, when people talk about it as if it's some kind of strange metaphysical event that only they know about. It's a craft. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a job. And and my pleasure in the job is. Is being able to utilise whatever skill I've got to the best advantage, and uh, but I see it as a craft. It's you know it's a craft that I practice, and um, and I think my my connection with Robert Aldridge was was that I could see that in his work.
0: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actor Alfred Molina. Lin Manuel Miranda has that line in um, Hamilton: "The immigrants we get the job done." Yeah. I wonder if you, having gone into the most frivolous of all professions, (laughs) um, uh, if there is a part of the way that you approach your work that comes from the fact that your parents were immigrants who chose on your behalf in large part to live a life of painful and difficult work.
2: I'm I'm sure that could well be. I don't quite know to what extent. Or how deep that goes, but I, I think you're right. I think there is. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a kind of anti-intellectualism on my part, or whether I'm just being defensive, or if I'm just uh, trying hard not to, you know, not to sort of be honest with myself about it. But I've always, I've always thought that my parents' experience of being immigrants to the UK, and my own experience of being an immigrant to America. Has given me a perspective that is more to do with just wanting to just wanting to do the job rather than wanting to kind of talk about the job. You know, I mean, I I talk about acting. I, you know, I, I do a bit of teaching occasionally. Uh, I'm happy to talk with younger actors about. My experiences and, and you know, they, whatever they glean from that is great, you know, if anything. But I, I don't talk about the work as if it was art. It's a craft, uh, in my opinion. Um, I I try not to use the word artist when I'm describing anything I'm doing or anything I'm about. It, uh, it, I see myself as a craftsperson. And my and my job is is part of a bigger storytelling process. That's why I've always my only criteria was to stay employed. And that's something I learned from my parents. You know, uh, that's something that I watch them do and something that I at one point in my life, I kind of despised them for it. But now I I respect them enormously um, for what they had to deal with, what they had to sacrifice, what they put up with what they achieved Um, and any story. And I think playing characters who are not from where they are, you know, playing characters who are foreign in some way, maybe that's part of it as well. Maybe the attraction of playing those parts is to do with their experience and mine. Um, But as far as the work's concerned, I, I, I take my work very seriously and I really admire other people's work. I'm a, you know, I'm 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 a fan. I'm a consumer of good work as much as I try to be a a a, a practitioner. Um, but it is a job. It's a gig. It's it's um it's a craft that you can that if you're lucky enough to stay on the bus and keep working at it, um, you can get better at it.
0: Well, Alfred Molina, A.K.A. Alfredo Molina. Thank you. A.K.A. Fred Molina. That's right. Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. It was really great to get to
2: talk oh, to you. Oh, likewise. it been a real pleasure. Thank you.
0: Alfred Molina. Make sure to watch him in Feud. It is really, really amazing TV. And also, while you're at it, watch Spider-Man 2. If you've not seen Spider-Man 2, go see Spider-Man 2. It's a super fun movie. It's like my favorite superhero movie. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, another Emmy-nominated star on FX, the great Louis Anderson. Of course, Louis Anderson doesn't need much of an introduction. He's been a stand-up comic for more than 30 years. You've probably seen his stand-up on TV at some point. He had his own cartoon show in the 90s, Life with Louis. He hosted The Family Feud for quite a while. Lately, though, his career has taken sort of a different turn. Last year, he took a part in the FX series, Baskets. The show stars Zach Galifianakis as Chip Baskets, a kind of mean, sad, aspiring rodeo clown in Bakersfield, California. Louie plays his mom, Christine Baskets. Last year, Louie won an Emmy for the role, and he's up for the same award again this year. And if you've ever seen the show, you know why. He is magical. Anderson is in drag, I guess, but it is not a drag performance. There's no camp or wink. He takes the part seriously. He plays Christine funny when she's funny, sad when she's sad. Let's take a listen to a scene from the show's second season. Christine just traveled to jail in Camarillo, California, in order to bail out her son Chip, who's played by Galifianakis. And in this scene, they are meeting in the visitor's room, and Christine's patience is wearing thin.
4: Oh, I can't believe it. When Dale told me, Dale told you, I thought, "Oh my God, my son! I don't even see my Chippy in there. I just see a jailbird." Mom, I, I, I don't want you worrying about me anymore. Okay?
1: It's not worth it for you. What did you do to get in here, Mom? It was just, it was trespassing and, 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 and mischief, I think. Mischief, mischief, yeah, general
3: mischief. 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 Were you chasing a mouse around?
4: <sighs> Chip Is it because I sent your French wife away? No, that's not it You know, Chip, I provide a house for you I give you food I give you money I, brought, I, bought,
3: I bought you tennis shoes I paid for your clown college I don't know what to tell you,
0: Mom I'm, I'm a millennial
3: What does that even mean?
0: <laughs> Louie Anderson, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. a part of that that is, I mean, I'm a millennial. What does that even mean is the hardest joke there, but the one that I really love is I bought you tennis shoes. Yeah.
3: You know, that was a little bit of, we we were ad-libbing that scene back and forth. You know, where we needed the info in it, but Zach and I were going back and forth. And when I I was naming things that I provided for him, I couldn't think of uh, the right word. So I just went with what would be authentic, maybe, to the character and came with tennis shoes. Because, <laughs> you know, that's something, you know, that you know that's like, uh, I got you into college. I got you a car.
4: <laughs> what about those socks? Those so-
3: <laughs> and I just thought, you know, there's always a real, you know, like mothers especially have this affinity for beauty things they get their kids.
4: Like, I got you those beautiful socks that time.
3: I My had, mom used to whisper
0: it. I had a friend in elementary school named Evan. Uh, uh, he was still a, still a friend of mine. And Evan, from from literally from preschool into high school, his mom would get him socks for Christmas. And she would go to the Gap and get... When the Gap was big on selling, like, uh, primary colored you know, basics, she would get him all these different color socks, and he would get that for Christmas. And she never understood, she was a wonderful woman, never understood why he wasn't happy to get socks for Christmas. Probably because she had no socks (laughs) growing (laughs) up and
3: always wanted socks. I find that to be our motivation in life almost with everything. Whatever we missed in our childhood, we really try to make up for in our adulthood.
0: What did you feel like you missed in your childhood?
3: Well, I have tons of underwear at home. So I only, I remember we were poor, we were on welfare. And so every, the welfare, and we had 11 children, my dad worked, but we got some help. So, you know, with different things like rent and just small things though. And, um, cause you know, they were reluctant to give anyone help that had any kind of income. it was. It's a funny thing that they do in the welfare department. But So every year, they would give you these vouchers because they didn't trust you with cash. That's how I looked at it. Um, and we would go down to Robert Hall, which was a store in the Midwest that was a men's store. And I would get uh, two pair of pants, two shirts, two pair of underwear, two t-shirts, two, two pair of socks, or three, and a pair of shoes, a pair of boots, and a jacket, and that was it. You know that kind of had to last me. One day, one week, or one day, I would wear those pants, and then, you know. And I remember the guy when I came in. My mom said, "I've got some vouchers for him," and his he got on the micro. Remember when they'd have a microphone or a, and he goes, "Saul, Saul, I got a husky coming back for you." And it was, it was, I, I was in shock for a second, but they were like, could you please stand on the Husky platform? I even knew the humor of that then, (laughs) you know, I just wanted to go back and bite him. You know, it was a big dog. And, um, I just had that image of me pulling a sled as a Husky and it just made me laugh inside. And then it was, you know, it was humiliating to have that announced on the store even though nobody probably cared a bit about it those are the kind of things so I think because I couldn't have things I'm always buying clothes I go I think I might be out of shirts and I've got like 1100 shirts you know that kind of thing but I cleaned out my storage I had six big boxes of underwear so it's I must, a lot of
0: underwear but it is but, freedom from want
3: Yeah, it, I think it has to it is, is freedom from want but I think I must think I'm always out of underwear because it's a humiliating thing as a kid to only have a couple pair of underwear. You know, to be without is not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, you don't want to be humiliated by it. I think kids are always worried about being humiliated by what they don't have in a situation. Growing up in the... Pro- we we would line up in the project lines, which I always thought, this is cruel, you know. And all the kids had the same jacket from the store where the vouchers were. It was It was... I, I got a lot out of that. It, it created who I am, so how can I not be thankful for it?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's that's a nice thing to say.
3: I mean, I think that's the thing you must come to the conclusion of, because otherwise I could be at McDonald's going, do you want a large fry or do you want a medium fry? That could really have happened. Who knows? I mean, not that I wouldn't be unhappy. I, pr- I probably would like being at McDonald's.
0: I read, with- I read somewhere that your conviction— was that you were going to, like, be something and make something of yourself, but that your first idea of what that would be was that maybe you could become president.
3: Yes. I was convinced.
0: How old are we talking about?
3: I think it just—I think when I realized how much power the president had, because I was powerless in my family with 11 kids and an alcoholic father and a a crazy mother, Uh, she was the salvation of the whole group. So, you know, I kind of thought— well, that would make my mom proud if I became president. And then, you know, I would be a very good politician. I could get elected, but I would be a terrible administrator. Because I would just, like, no, nah, I wouldn't want to do any of that work. They would bring it in. I go, what? I have to meet with who? I couldn't do it. And so I just tried comedy on a dare. In 1978, a friend dared me. We were at a bar, and these comics were out there, and I go, these guys aren't funny goes, you think you're so funny. Why don't you try it? I go, I will. And the next week I signed up. For a one-time thing, I never... I was never going to be a comedian.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Louis Anderson. He plays Christine on the FX show, Baskets. Did you know, like, what, what comedy... Was? I mean, I. Yeah, yeah I, We because, all know what comedy is, but I mean, yeah. did you know, like, what an act was or, like, what the well, parts I, of stand up were when you. Went I thought out? I knew everything.
3: So, do you know that complex? You know, because I think I was just an ego driven kid with, uh, you know, probably a maniacal want. And so. I. My dad was a musician, very successful musician, very early in his life. But by the time I came along, he was done with all that. And he was a mean alcoholic who was very troubled.
0: He was 50 when you were born. He was 50 born, right? when and, I was born. And he had been a trumpeter.
3: Trumpeter with Hoagy Carmichael. And but lost his lip. Lost his lip. That's what he always said. And he had a little uh, mouthpiece. He always still... Practice on. He played a ukulele and a harmonica. When my mom was mad at him, to try to butter up to her. So, um, so you know, I would stay up with him and watch the Tonight Show because I was an insomniac as a kid. You know, most comics I think are are crazy, and so we're up all night or late at night. And even as kids, and so I would watch the comedians. And I love Jack Benny. And I loved uh, Jonathan Winters, and I loved Bob Hope, and I loved Johnny Carson and Jackie Vernon. I can still remember all the comedians I connected with immediately. I connected with all the comedians who had uh, something something different than the other comedians had.
0: What about your mother? You have talked about your mother in and your family and your act for decades and decades and now this part that you play on baskets is a sort of an homage to her what was she what, what was she like in your family
3: she was just like a big chicken who kept her chicks safe that's how i really look at her she, she you
0: had 10 brothers and sisters 10 brothers and sisters and your mother also lost 5 children in that's childbirth that's right that's right
3: and that's extraordinary it's really extraordinary, and I had no idea, you know, but look at my mom. The first baby died, two sets of twins died, and I think I wonder how many other things had happened that must have been traumatic. And yet there was a sunshine about her face all the time, you know, that we had depended on. She had a very big sole purpose to end up surviving whatever situation she was in with— uh, with uh, a smile on her face and 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 lipstick on she wanted to look you know she she wanted to be look good she she was a you know wonderfully sweet person but very vain and and um self-centered in in her own way cuz she grew up a very spoiled child and had a rich father and mother who were very disappointed that my father you know
0: got her pregnant and that was it did you, did you and your brothers and sisters have ways of getting time and attention from your parents?
3: You know, here's the thing. When you grow up in a family where there's a 20-year span, there's three different families. There's the oldest kids, the middle kids, and the youngest kids. And sometimes the middle kids are part of the youngest kids, and the middle kids are also part of the oldest kids. So there's a couple ties there. But mostly you grow up in three different families. So um, I was the kind of kid who had his head on his hand and would sit and listen to the adults. That's the kind of kid I was. I always think comics come from a big stew that sits on the stove for a long time. And when it, you know, you just, you're the right ingredients were in there for the 10th child or whatever it was. Because all my brothers... And sisters are talented and funny and sweet and crazy and all like me. But I had the right combination and opportunity or something or drive. I think it could be the drive.
0: We've got more from Louie Anderson after a short break. Let's say you're a big, older dude. And I don't know, maybe you actually are. How would you feel watching yourself on TV in a dress? And not a really good dress either. That's part of Louie Anderson's job. I'll talk to him about it when we come back in just a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Let ZipRecruiter's powerful technology match your job to the right candidates and use their simple dashboard to find the right hire. That's why 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash first. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Louie Anderson in just a second. But first, let's check in on our sister show, Pop Rocket. It is the chat show sibling to our interview show. It's all about everything great in popular culture with a brilliant panel this week's show, hosted by pop culture academic Karen Tongson. Hey, Karen, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week?
1: Hey, Jesse. This week is our Netflix and chill episode. We're entering the kind of waning days of summer, and so it's a time to kind of accelerate your way through the Netflix queue, all the new series that have come out like over the course of the summer and some new films like Okja. So listen to that for some recommendations.
0: Thanks, Karen. Pop Rocket. Type it into your podcast thingy. Hit subscribe. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Louis Anderson. He's just been nominated for his second Emmy for his role as Christine in the FX series Baskets. Did you ever get to hang out with your mom?
3: Yeah, because, you know, my dad died in 79. She died in 90. I took care of my mom.
0: So as an adult, but what about as a kid?
3: You know, I have, not, I have very few memories as, my chi- as a childhood. I blocked out, I think, a lot of stuff.
0: That's surprising to hear for somebody who's been doing uh, material about his family well, for 35 but years. But in the sense
3: of <laughs> I had relationships with all those people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm recreating the relationships. Yeah, But specifics, like when you say that. I see pictures of myself in those social situations. But I don't have that clear recollection that some people do.
0: I want to play a clip from your stand-up. From, uh, this is from a special from 1989 called Mom, Louie's Looking at Me Again. Um, and you're talking about growing up in Minnesota with your family, especially your folks. And um, you're, you do in this clip an impression of your mom's social moves, her chattiness. Mm-hmm.
3: Whenever my dad would start working on something, my mom would come around and do that babbling. She'd hover around him. And do Well, we all went down to Woolworths and I was able to find some of that junk jewelry I've been looking for. And then I got that hat for Janet's daughter. And then we went over to the Red Owl and I got a three-pound roast. No fat, I don't know. You wouldn't believe it. Then I found these radishes as red as a fire engine. You wouldn't believe it. About this big. You know how you like them? You dunk them in the salt, and you eat them, you make that crunchy thing. I just love that. And then I was driving the car and I was going up a hill and it took, I think you're using that cheap... Shut up! No wonder I'm going nuts! And your mom wouldn't shut up. She's really hurt, in fact. She'd kind of trail off.
0: (laughs) Shut up. You're from Minnesota, Hmm. and there's this thing called Minnesota Nice. Hmm. It is the, uh, the watchwords of the entire state of Minnesota. Um and it means a kind of reserved politeness um and niceness that is sincere uh but also can be uh passive aggressive or um conflict avoidant to the point to the point of it causing problems that kind of thing um and i wonder you know like your your midwesternness and your family's midwesternness especially your mom is like so baked into your comedy um and i wonder like if you ever think about uh what you lost from the niceness in your family or in your growing up in addition to what you gained from it
3: well i always said that they're you know they're passive aggressive they they'll They'll uh, bandage you up, but they were the ones who cut you in the first place, <laughs> and then they'll rip the bandage off at a certain point, and then want to redress it. So there's a, I think it's uh it's insidious, you know, it's that whole thing. You know, I was Minnesota is such an unusual place. I've been everywhere, and there's a real sense of we will open our arms to you, we will accept you. And then they will not show you the rule book.
0: <laughs> yes! They don't give you the rule book. <laughs> I so will...
3: they, and I don't know if they don't do it because they want to eventually get rid of you or they just want to see if you're worthy of the rules or if you can learn on your own or something.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Louis Anderson. He's a legendary stand-up comedian and television host. He's also the star of FX's Baskets. I want to play another clip from Baskets um, and uh, my guest, Louis Anderson, who plays Christine, Zach Zach Galifianakis, the uh, title character's mother. And in season two of the show, which is the last show, by the way, Louis nominated for another Emmy Award for his performance. Um, She is thinking about being romantic for the first time in a long time. And she's talking with Martha, who is uh, uh, her friend and, and Zach's characters, about a uh, new flame.
3: Did you get lamb Chow? I don't want her peeing there. That dog pees everywhere. I've seen it.
1: You know, I don't think she has to pee. I think she just misses her meme off probably.
3: Yeah. Okay.
1: How are you doing?
3: I'm good and keep myself busy. You know, we've got you know, people coming over to pay their respects, and that's always a nice thing. And, yeah. <sighs> you know, I uh remember that guy? Yeah. I went to see him.
1: Oh, that's great, Mrs. Denver. Baskets.
3: And you were right. There was a sexual vibe. Did I say that? You did. And I had a terrific time, Martha. That city yes. is, you know, so high, so technically, I guess, you know, I'm part of the Mile High Club.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great.
3: I love that scene. <laughs> you know what? I th- that scene was a really important scene. All of that stuff there, because Christine, you know, hadn't probably hugged anyone for what twenty five years or more. That's how I figured it. I don't think anybody paid any attention to her, and she was taking care of the kids, and maybe because she got so fat, she didn't think she was desirable. And then here is this guy. Who has a like-minded situation with his child, and yet he's so kind and loving to her? She has. She's perplexed. Is this when he hugged me? Hugged Christine at at the end of the Reagan Library thing. I worked a long time on the expression that I would have inside for that hug, and I I got it. 25 years of not being hugged. I thought of my mom and cuz from 1979 till 90 I don't think my mom got hugged again from the opposite sex. Well, if she like did like romantically. Right? If she did, she wasn't telling us. <laughs> I hope she did. I hope she I hope she did cuz she she was a sweet person but she, you know, she was a, she She made people instinctively feel better. She knew how to make people feel. I learned that from her. She goes, you you know, you should be nice to everybody, Louie. And I go, why? She goes, because you don't know what kind of day they had. So what? What about what kind of day I had? You know, when you're a dumb teenager.
0: Are you comfortable looking at yourself on screen? Sometimes.
3: You I got look- really fat the first year. I was really fat. And the second year I tried to lose some weight because Jonathan thought it would be better physically for me. He was just real straightforward with me about it. Uh, and then the third year now, I did take control of and have become – I'm a healthy – I'm eating very healthy and I'm a really healthy person right now. The most healthy person I've ever been. I don't smoke. I don't – well, I drink – I would drink a glass of champagne if you had really good champagne. But um, (laughs) that's about my limit there. But I don't – I'm serious about living as long as possible.
0: Why is that?
4: This is hard because I've lost my brother a couple years ago. (laughs) My baby brother saw me – and uh, he was sixty, and I couldn't save him. So I thought maybe I'll save myself.
0: He was bipolar, right?
4: Yeah, he was everything, but he was—he so, had really worked a lot of that out. I mean, occasionally he would throw a plate of food against the wall, but who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, he was a lovely person. He was my baby brother.
0: That's a really... um... It's a hard
4: one for me still every day because we grew up like this. We were very close, very close. We had endured the same stuff all through. You know, I've lost seven siblings. It's very hard, very, very hard. I learned all my stuff and all that loss. I learned a lot of stuff. And uh, I cherish every moment with who's left in my family.
0: You have an incredible... To be a great comedian, and especially the kind of great comedian who is able to perform for any kind of audience the kind of comedian who can open for the pointer sisters and do the tonight show and uh open for leonard skyndard or whatever and kill in all of those places you have to have an extraordinary sense of what the audience will go for basically like what what will work for them and I wonder if you're ever, if you've ever, if you ever feel constrained by that. Um, there's all
3: right. You mean like? Well, go ahead. Give me a because I, I, I'm not sure your question. I'm is sure
0: it. there are versions of you uh, that would be great that don't work for everybody, right? Yeah. No. I. I only listen. I.
3: I agree with you, and I no longer am that comedian. Mm-hmm. I'm not out to please everybody anymore. You know, I. I wish if I were to do it all over again I'd be less popular and much more uh artistic.
0: I think you're very artistic in your work so I w- hope you wouldn't no, but I, I mean, you don't feel otherwise but I think
3: I'd be much more controversial maybe that cuz I would be t- I mean I would have a l- much harsher truth to to all the characters you know like you know I softened everything I made my dad a human being in my cartoon. I took who my dad was, and I softened him up. But you still knew he was dangerous at any moment in the cartoon, even then. And that's what I was going for. And that's who I am on stage. I can, I'm there. I'm very friendly. But I'm, not, I'm a very dangerous person.
0: Well, Louie, given how dangerous you are, I think I better get out of here.
3: <laughs> but you know what I mean by that dangerous I thing. do. Don't yeah. worry. If no, they... I'm not, I'm not worried. You know, that's the greatest thing at a certain point in your life when you get older. Why worry? I always tell people, you know, worry will not extend your life one second. Stay in the present if you can. It's the hardest thing to do. Or send me presents. I love that.
0: Well, Louis, I'm so grateful for you to to you for um, coming here and talking to me. Thank you so much for being on Bullseye. Thank you, Jesse. Louis Anderson, check him out in Baskets on FX. You can see why he gets all these awards. And while you're at it, you can go check out some of Louis' stand-up comedy. He is a genuine legend. Every week, we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a recommendation from me, your host it's the outshot. When Roger Ebert reviewed the Thomas Crown Affair, and this is an actual literal quote from 1968, he said it was possibly the most underplotted, underwritten, over-photographed film of the year. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't see that many of the rest of the films of 1968, so I can't tell you that he was wrong. But I can tell you that the Thomas Crown Affair is so gosh darn beautiful that honestly, all that stuff doesn't matter.
1: Hey, what's, what's going on here? Sit down. Work an hour. You do an errand. You drive a car. Uh, is it uh, dangerous? <laughs> it shouldn't be. If anyone shoots, you're on your own. Quit, run, do what you want. Money. What's in it for me? Fifty. Thousand. Maybe more. But Fifty anyhow. And monthly installments. So no quick spending. How do I know that I'll get... You don't.
0: Kevin Jewison directed Thomas Crown, and he was coming off of two big movies, The Russians Are Coming and In the Heat of the Night. Basically, he had helped create the new Hollywood, sweep away the boring old studio fogies, invent American cinema in the 1970s. The Russians Are Coming is a comedy, and it's suffused with Cold War tension and discomfort. In the Heat of the Night is a tight detective story, suffused with racial tension. And to be honest, the Thomas Crown Affair isn't suffused with much of anything important. Except, I guess, maybe being pretty? But man, is it pretty. The basic setup is this. We open on a heist. Cash money, huge amounts, walking out of a bank in broad daylight. We see the pieces of the heist come together, then disperse into nothing. The cops are lost. What are they going to do? How could it come together so quickly and come apart so thoroughly? And we see all these pieces in a way that few moviegoers had in 1968. As this action set piece rushes forward, the screen splits into panes. Little moments, details. These days, doing that's almost cliche. Back then, it was revolutionary. So anyway, the cops don't know what hit them. The insurance company brings in their man, or actually woman, Faye Dunaway. A sort of robbery-loot bounty hunter who finds the thief and then keeps 10%. Pretty quickly she figures out who did it, Steve McQueen. He's an executive at the bank. But you can't pin it on him. And the tricky bit is, while she's investigating, they're falling in love. The plot wheels turn. They don't turn all that fast for this kind of movie, Most of the Thomas Crown affair is Faye Dunaway making confident declarations while wearing spectacular suits and Steve McQueen squinting at the horizon, also wearing spectacular suits. And you don't really need to see much more than that to be wrapped, or at least I didn't. The cliche thing you tell screenwriters is to be more visual, right? Give the director something to show. Don't just give us dialogue where people are telling each other things. Make something happen on camera. Jewison wrote this movie himself, and to say he wrote it maybe overstates what he did. At some point, basically, he just thought to himself, wouldn't it be great if Steve McQueen was driving Faye Dunaway in a dune buggy? And, like, they're on a beautiful, beautiful beach, and uh, it's in front of a beautiful, beautiful sunset. And yes— It is great. Really great. Also, the polo scene is great. The hang gliding scene is great. They just take your breath away. And there's this famous scene where the two of them, the two stars, play chess together. But seriously, when you look at Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway playing chess, just regular chess, it automatically, because of the people involved, becomes sex chess. Like any good heist movie, there are a couple of twists, a few plot points interlock interestingly. But that's not why you watch The Thomas Crown Affair for plot points. You watch The Thomas Crown Affair because it's cool and it's beautiful. And frankly, that's enough sometimes. That's my outshot. Thanks all for this week's Bullseye. The show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park in downtown Los Angeles, California. An update from the MacArthur Park Lake. We saw someone rescue a shopping cart using a boat. Good work. It was truly high times on the high seas. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien this week. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Nick Liao. Our senior producer at Max Fun, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go team. They let us use it, along with their label, Memphis Industries, our thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, go to town. They're all free. You can find them at MaximumFun.org in your favorite podcatcher or on the Bullseye YouTube channel. And while you're at it... Like us on Facebook, and you will get a steady stream of updates on what's going on on the show, uh, previews about upcoming guests. You can tell us what you think about the show. And uh, we give you lots of cool culture news and also dumb stuff we found on the Internet. You can find that at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, or just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.